Welcome to the DLR Library Podcast, Need to Read, recommended reads from those in the know. Okay, my name is Hayley and I'm here with Billy in the Lexicon Library. We're sitting by the big windows in the Children's Library looking out to sea. It's very lovely. Very well, You're very welcome, Billy. Thank you, Hayley. Thanks for talking to me. Not a bother, not a bother. Um, so maybe just as I start with most people, just you could tell me a little bit about what you like to read and, and your kind of background in reading. Uh, well, I think for me, reading is a way of retreating from reality and unwinding, as well as informing myself. So I tend to kind of mix it up between fiction and non-fiction. And particularly in these rather dark and certain times we li- live in, we're living through now, I think reading becomes much more important in a sense to retreat from reality. For me, uh, you know, a book is a good way of going on a journey of the imagination, whether, again, it's a non-fiction title or a fiction. And something with a good storyline, a great arc that takes you through someone's journey. Um, I mean, when it comes to non-fiction, I do like reading biographies, for example, whether they're of artists or politicians. And when it comes to fiction, it's quite a wide variety of things I like reading. I love thrillers and I love crime, but I also love a lot of literary fiction. Um, and I also love reading a lot of history. I mean, my own background before I entered libraries was actually studying history at university where I studied Irish history. And I still have an interest in reading Irish history now. But one of the great things about having finished formal study of history is some, from so many years I was reading history books in various aspects of Irish life and culture in the 19th to early 20th centuries. And then suddenly when I submitted my thesis, then suddenly I was free to read what I like. So for the last 10 years, I've been kind of reading anything that grabs my fancy, essentially, as a way of unwinding and escaping from reality. Um, I remember my grandmother telling me as a boy that, you know, once you have a book, you have a friend. And that line has always struck with me. And I do think, thankfully, over the years, I've met many friends through many pages of books I've read. It's lovely. And so what are you reading at the moment? At the moment, I'm trying to read. Um, <laughs> potting around a second-hand bookstore, um, I'm reading a collection of art criticism by Robert Hughes, the, the late Australian art critic, you know. Um, I'm also rereading E.F. Benson's Map in Lucia. That's a, set, that's a series of com- kind of comical novels set in, I suppose, the early 20th century, 1920s, in a fictional town by the sea called Tilling, and it's about the rivalry between two grand dames of the town, Map and Lucia. And it's been serialized a few times on TV. It's complete escape from reality, you know. Um, you don't actually have to <laughs> think too hard. Um, but it's a wonderful escape from, as I say, all this craziness we're currently going through now. And also, um, I'm also reading a, uh, it was a guy called Fran Budgen, and he wrote a, a memoir in the 30s, which is kind of a memoir stroke guide to Ulysses, uh, which I think is a rather interesting book in itself, actually. So that's what I'm trying to read at the moment, trying to keep myself amused and informed, and probably, to be quite honest, quite sane in all this craziness right now. Yeah, and you're, you're very good at recommending books you've recommended a lot to me and I feel like there's no topic you you wouldn't have read about <laughs> well that's you you're, you're too flattering <laughs> but as anybody who is in the library service to tell you you do pick up a great deal of knowledge over the years from what you read yourself and from what colleagues recommend to you and what you overhear people recommending 
And I do think all of us over time build up a great deal of expertise. The beauty of working in the library service, I find over the years with many colleagues of special interests, whether they're in fiction or nonfiction. And they will recommend, and I think you do learn from each other, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is hopefully the, this is the point of the podcast and why I've asked you as well. So um, mm-hmm. you rec- maybe you talk about who you're going to talk about today. And oh, yes, that Yoki Mishima, the Japanese writer, uh, whose work I first came across quite by chance First of all, oddly, 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 oddly in the 80s when Paul Schrader released a movie based on his life, which is a rather surreal one, called Yoki Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, which it's a very kind of art house film and a very strange one. Um, I must have seen it when I was, what, in my latish, goodness me, 85, 86, I think that was released. So I must have been about in my teens. Mm -hmm. And... It stuck me as a very strange experience into the movie, which kind of interspersed Mishima's life with chunks of his various novels and stuff, which I then later went on to read. Um, so what I had read would be things like, oh my goodness, the Confessions of a Mask, uh, the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, and later on then I read the Seer Fertility Tetralogy, which were his last kind of completed literary works. You're dealing with a man who's of incredibly productive. I think there must be about 50 novels he wrote. Uh, there are, again, maybe 25 collections of short stories, numerous essays and reviews. He also wrote a lot of plays. I mean, he's an interesting figure in Japanese literature. There was a whole wave of Japanese writers that emerged after World War II called the Second Generation. And uh, Mishima was the foremost of those. Um, born in 1924 and died in 1970. Some older listeners to this podcast will probably quite remember the circumstances of, of his death. He, it'll be the 50th anniversary this coming November, you know. Of um, but Of his death, yeah. yeah. So I suspect there will be a run of interest in his work, both in Japan and elsewhere. Um but we can carry on if you wish. Any other questions? As I said, I'm just sitting here and I'm kind of. Uh, I should I should add you've no notes or anything. This is just all no, no. This is all f- this is all off <laughs> the cuff. This is all off the cuff freestyle. So yeah, uh, he was strange mm-hmm. in that he was he was so prolific and, and he was really popular while he was alive as oh, well. Oh, very, very. I mean, the manner of his death that made him famous. Yeah, and quite controversial. I think it's still a very sensitive topic to this day in Japan. Um, they they refer to it as the Mishima incident, you know. Um, mm. I think when you look through Mishima's work, and this has been looked at by some of his biographers in, in English, uh, John Nathan uh, and, one, and several others who knew him, um, that there seems to have been, how does one tactfully put this, a debt wish tinge of a certain eroticism, which exists alongside a typically Japanese, Japanese sense of beauty. And this is a feature in Japanese literature that goes way back to this appreciation of the physical world, the natural world, and its transits its mortality. And this is very often bound up in, you know, in 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 a, in a tradition of Buddhism, which, for example, recognizes the mortality of all things. There's a Japanese term for which I hope to get us pronounced correctly called awawe, mm-hmm. which is which celebrates the fleetingness of beauty of existence of all natural phenomenon, you know. 
And this is a marked feature in Japanese literature that goes right back to the very early days. I mean, my own experience of Japanese literature is true translation, and it's true, let's just say, and it is patchy, you know. I'm certainly not a cinephile, in sense, or whatever. I mean, or an expert in Eastern literatures in any great sense. But the beauty of a lot of this literature is <clears throat> its emphasis on beauty and a very refined eye looking at the natural world. Japanese literature, in, a, in, in, in its distinct sense, kicks off, let's say, from about, let's say, the 9th, 10th century onwards, in a very rarefied atmosphere of the Japanese court, where various ladies-in-waiting actually began writing diaries, and also what were actually among the world's very first novels. I mean, some people who of you listening may be familiar with some of them, the Murasaki Shikibu's um, The Tale of Genji, but there's also some other wonderful books, which I've read, and I adore them. The Pillow Book of Sai Shonagon, which is a kind of very odd mix of diary, travelogue, reminiscence, lists of favorite things and the reasons why she likes some things and hates some things. And then there's Sarashina Nikkei, which was beautifully translated by Ivan Morris, who was actually one of the leading translators of a lot of the Japanese literature. He also translated much of Mishima's work. And it's a very beautiful diary, again, stroke memoir. But it's interesting that Japanese literature is largely created in the very beginning by women who create and set a certain template for this, as I say, this appreciation of beauty and this appreciation of, let's say, its very transience. And when you go, then this is a thread that works its way right through Japanese literature right into the 20th century. And Mishima is a wonderful figure in that you see this sense of the transience of beauty and this keen eye for beauty itself, whether it's in the natural world or whether it's in people's physical beauty, beauty of their inner lives. But he mixes a Japanese sense with Western literary technique. This is a man who, when he was young, and he was very, very, you know, precocious young man, uh, when he went to the school, he went to the top school in Tokyo called the Pierce School, you know, and it had a very high academic record. So he read people like Proust, he read Rilke, he read a lot of the English writers of the 19th, early 20th century. <clears throat> and he is a markedly unusual Japanese writer in the sense that he, is, he has one foot in the West, in the Western canon, and another foot in his own Japanese literature. I mean, he was very widely read in Japanese, classical Japanese literature. He almost certainly read people like Sai Shonagon, uh, Murasaki Shippibu, and others. And he was also, in his earliest works, literary works were actually inspired by Japanese poetry, waka poetry, you know. Um, but he went on then to write very heavily influenced, technique-wise, Western novels, you know. And from then on then, his career then took off after World War II. Um, his first novel that he had critical acclaim was Confessions of a Mask, which is semi-autobiographical, and it's an interesting work. Yeah. So yeah, you, you mentioned that he's sort of one foot in the West, and, mm -hmm. and but it, it, from reading about him, it seems that he was very well. He turned very anti-Western or anti-modernization, maybe. Yeah. To say um, he he didn't like how, where Japan was going and um, wanted to sort of reject all the, the Western values, um, although he had taken on a lot of them himself. Yeah. And um, so he's kind of. Uh, contradicts 
contradictory character. Really. Mm, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Want, wanted to sort of go back to the ways, Buddhist ways. And I'd say the Buddhist would be very open to change, mm-hmm. where he didn't seem, in, in the end, he didn't seem that open to change, did he? He's a peculiar character. I mean, when you, he is a bundle of contradictions, you know. Um, I think what you do see, if you look at his, at the arc of his life, I think there is a shift that gradually happens over time, and it takes off in the the 60s, where he becomes far more of a nationalist and moves very much to the right. He became a hate figure for the left in Japan in the late 60s. And you begin to see, I think, um, this change in attitude in his essays. And you also begin to see it in the last novels he wrote. Certainly, I think he became very critical of westernization in Japan. And he was very critical of what he saw as much of the decadence of modern life, even though he benefited from it a great deal. I mean... His house is meant to be decked out. In oh, yeah. His house was... <laughs> like was, was a, art styles. And oh, yeah. I mean, he was a fa- his house was basically like a... It was in a classical style, and was in a Western classical style. It certainly wasn't Japanese. He had a maid uh, who dressed like a Western maid with, in a black and white <laughs> uniform, and he organized dinner parties along Western lines, you know. Um, I actually have a quote yeah. um, about sort of Western-style mm-hmm. houses um, that he said. Uh, so this is from an interview in the New York Times in the 70s, probably mm-hmm. so, uh, 1970s, so probably not long before he died. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he, so it, it's sort of in, de, in defense of his house looking westernized. So he said, if you look at my house, it seems completely westernized, but I'm living in a double house. You can only see the visible house, but I also live in an invisible house, which you cannot see. Let me give you a simple explanation for the Western civilization you see here. Here are two floors of a house. How to get from the first to the second floor is a basic problem. In Western culture, the solution is to make a stairway. Then anyone can climb up from the ground floor. The stairway is the method, not technique, not civilization, but method inherited from the ancient Greeks. They adopted this method in building their culture. Since the 19th century, the Japanese have learned the Western way of using a stairway. We imported this, this stairway, this method, from the West, and with the method, we immediately imported all the trappings of Western civilization to modernize our country. But in our own oriental way of thinking, there is no stairway at all. We never believed in method. It has been said of no acting that its highest discipline is a flower. How can you reach a flower? There is no method. You can only try hard by yourself independently. A teacher may suggest something, but he cannot help you. So it is with climbing to the second floor, you must try hard to climb by your own enthusiasm and ambition. Maybe you will jump up. Maybe you will climb a pillar, but you must decide yourself and not rely on method. Another way of thinking is Indian. The Indian meditates about how to reach the second floor and after a while reaches the conclusion that he's already there. That is an illusion. But we Japanese can actually climb to the second floor. So yeah, th- there's a lot in that, isn't there? Um, yeah. Where do I begin? So uh, I'm not asking you to critique that, but I guess 
he's letting some of it in, but it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's sort of in his heart. No, no. Yeah. I mean, in, in not not in his heart. I mean, I think for Mishima, he had a very idealized view of what Japan could be, and the Japan of Mishima lived in his mind actually as an ideal. You know, um, you know. For example, in the late sixties, he created a paramilitary. Uh, well, you know, I, I suppose you couldn't call it paramilitary, but a defense association called the Shield, which was a group of young students who would declare allegiance to the emperor and who would work to restore imperial rule and have an emperor rule by divine right. But it wasn't to Hirohito himself as an individual. In fact, in his late, latter years, in various articles and essays he wrote, he was quite critical of Hirohito, having surrendered to the Americans and renouncing his divine status. The emperor that the Shield Society swore to protect was kind of an abstract entity of the emperor, an ideal, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think this was the ideal, the perfection that was in Mishima's mind all the time. And I suppose when you look at Mishima's work, there's this striving towards an ideal of beauty that will somehow triumph over reality. There's something spiritually pure that is somehow permanent and that can't be compromised. And I do think if you look through Mishima's work, there's always this kind of struggle among his characters to attain some form of purity and preserve it, you know. And unfortunately, they're always frustrated in that desire, you know. Uh, for, take, for example, you know, um, the, sea of tetrilogy, the Sea of Fertility Tetralogy, you know. There's four novels in that. He was working from 65 right up to 70, 1970. In fact, the last chapter of the final novel was actually delivered the very morning he committed suicide to his publisher. But mm. you have in that second one of those four, the runaway horses, you have a young uh, right-wing nationalist, he's still a schoolboy, you know, hopes to actually bring about a revolution, you know, uh, organize an uprising in Tokyo that would bring down the industrial elite that he sees as compromising the purity of the emperor. And as he's trying to organize this, he's frustrated by the adults in his life, his father and others. And in a sense, it's been compared to, um, you know, uh, writing, my goodness, you know, holding Caulfield in a sense. (laughs) 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 You know, the catch and the rye in the sense that you have an adolescent up against an adult world which is corrupt and compromising. And the boy you know, makes the ultimate sacrifice at the end of the novel, even though the cause for which he was fighting has been so fatally compromised, but in his own mind, he has a certain purity, which he dies for. It's very grim, but in many senses, I think the I.O., the character in that, is, is, is a self-portrait of Mishima on, in one level, you know. And I think Mishima was trying to achieve that purity. I suspect one reason why he so happily embraced suicide was this realization that he couldn't achieve that perfection and purity he so desired. Do you think, was it anything to do with getting older as well, if you're so into yeah. beauty? Yeah, this is the thing about Mishima. It's noble to die young and yeah. beautiful. Um, I, yeah, I think to a certain extent as well that you know various of his biographers make a, no, a note that indeed Mishima was obsessed with physical perfection in himself. He was a very sickly child, you know, he grew up in a house where he was dominated by his grandmother, Natsuko, who was of an aristocratic background, you know. And she had, as we would say in Ireland, notions, you know. And she kept him separated from the rest of the household. And he grew up quite sickly. And 
Natsuko seems to have been uh, of a rather neurotic temperament and of a, of a very violent temper and very manipulative. And people attribute a lot of the problems that Mishima later developed in later life to her, you know, and this obsession with death perhaps comes from her in a sense, you know. Certainly the first, well, the second novel he, and the one he became famous for both in Japan and internationally, Confessions of a Mask, is semi-autobiographical in that much of Mishima's childhood was worked into that in the main character's seclusion from the rest of the household and indeed from reality by the grandmother. I think to overcompensate from that childhood in the 50s, he began weightlifting three times a week in the gym. He went out and became a, a practitioner of kendo, which is kind of traditional Japanese sword game, you know, and he became very proficient in that. Then he later on joined the Japanese Defense Forces in his 40s. And for a man of his age, he was physically fit right up to the end. And then I think in that final essay he wrote, which I think was Sun and Steel, where he made the point that the physical and intellectual should be joined together in perfection. And Japanese intellectuals had overly emphasized the intellectual in reaction against, let us say, a traditional Japanese approach in Bushido, the samurai, whereby the intellectual and the physical were combined. And, but because the whole samurai thing had been co-opted by the Japanese military during World War II, that was seen as compromised. And he taught the Japanese then overly developed the intellectual at the expense of the physical. And it is interesting that, you know, in some of his novels, his characters are quite physical people, that they're quite athletic, you know. In Runaway Horses, the, the, the main protagonist, the young protagonist, is a very physically fit young man, you know. And I think, in a sense, Mishima was trying to overcompensate for his youth. And I think it was always battling with debt and loving debt. It was, it's a very strange thing. Even all this time I've read his novels, I still can't quite decide what was he, did he actually have a debt wish. Several of his biographers say so. There are Adam and John Nathan being one, but others... Are, because, yeah, yeah, maybe we talk about the day that he died because mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. that's, uh, you know, it's very interesting. Well, yeah. Like, oh, do you think he planned it? He planned he, it quite meticulously. Uh, I mean, it looks as if he'd planned it for a good year. But he, w he was still trying to persuade people, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get a sort of a mil military coup. Uh, yeah, I mean, the whole idea behind the... Mishima incident, as the Japanese call it, in on November in 1970, was to, um, rather like the character in Runaway Horses, was to have that grand gesture that would begin a coup, which would begin a change, you know, that he thought that if he went into the, went into the Eastern Command HQ in Tokyo, took the commandant hostage, went to the balcony, made his announcement, he made, his he, demands. He told them to gather Yeah, yeah. He had courtyard. all the, he had, he had, yeah. yeah, that he would bring about a coup, you know. And again, you know, there was this idealized view of Japan in his mind that he so wanted to make a reality, you know. But of course, you know, he goes there on the pretext of a meeting, he and several of his uh, disciples, shall we call them, uh, show up, meet the commander, who in all innocence greets him because he'd been in and out quite a few times. Mishima's there in his uniform of his 
of this of the of the Shield Society with self styled. Self styled. <laughs> yeah, they were they're quite they're quite. You, you might see some of the photographs online. Yeah, there's, or, there's photographs from that day. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He was immaculately turned out for it. You know. Um, uh, part of the whole thing with this as well is you actually create a poem as well. Uh, it's kind of like a suicide poem, you know. And this whole ritualized, we call it Harry Carry, uh, but it, in Japanese it's Kosepuku, where you, uh, it's, well. <laughs> so nice way of saying it. it, it, it well, you know, it, one disembowels oneself with a sword, and it's a prescribed way of doing this. It's quite elaborate. And then you have a deputy to behead you. It is rather grim and rather unpleasant. There's a reason why Puccini doesn't have this Madame Butterfly on stage. Uh, it, it's, it's dreadful stuff. And unfortunately, in the Mishima case, it was rather botched. I won't go into the details. But he did, did die. He did die. And he had hoped that through his death, it would be a kind of a sacrifice. And that would perhaps bring about a new Japan based on the old very busy last day so he was writing on the morning yeah yeah uh, <laughs> finished his book dropped it in yeah tried to organize the coup yeah and, and everything was done with you know fastidious attention to detail you know the, the uniform was immaculate and the run-up to this he also put money to one side as um, for the defense of the remaining shield society members who would mm -hmm. be almost certainly compromised by the association and having accompanied him to the hq Nothing was left out. I mean, meticulous detail, mm. you know. I mean, the same kind of detail, ironically, eerily, that went into researching all the novels, which were meticulously detailed. I mean, if you go back and see our fertility tetralogy, the loca locales run from uh, Tokyo to Bangkok to various cities throughout Japan. And he visited them all. He visited all the locations, took copious notes, and he went, came back and then wrote them all up into the novels. So when you look at Michel, nothing was left to chance at all. You know, His life was a work of art in a sense, and in a very dark sense, his death was also a work of art. So mm -hmm. that's the man. Obviously, the man, the man is very yeah, interesting. Who is fascinating. Um, maybe just in it, in a very simple sense of, of recommending his books, mm -hmm. um, maybe you tell me a little bit about the, the trilogy? Tetralogy, The Sea of Fertility. Of yeah, I mean, The Sea of Fertility was produced from 1965 to 1970. And it's his most ambitious work. Uneven in quality, I must admit, much as I like his work. Um, four novels. Uh, first one, set in the early 20th century, um, Spring Snows, is a love story between an aristocrat, two aristocrats, uh, Kiyoki, Mako, Kiyoki and Satoko, who, it's a tragic love story, and it's observed by Kiyoki's friend Honda. The second one then is about, called Runaway Horses, set in the early 1930s, and it's about that young man who I mentioned earlier, the young nationalist, who wants to engineer a coup. And the third one, Temple of, the Temple of Dawn, is set in the 1940s. Then again, first half. Second half, then 19, early 50s. At the final chapter, 1967. 
and the very last one, um, the, decay, the, the, the decay of the angel, is set in the in the 1970s. And indeed, Mishima goes ahead into a near future, what would have been a near future for him in that. The, the single thread through them is the following, a, a reincarnation rebirth. Uh, Honda believes, that, is trying throughout the novels to save Kiyoke. In the first novel, he tries saving Kiyoke when he falls tragically in love with Satoko. And in the second, third and fourth novels, he is then trying to save a reincarnation of his friend. In the second novel, Runaway Horses, it's the young nationalist. In the third novel, it's a, a Thai princess. And in the fourth novel, it's an, a, a young orphan he adopts and has as his heir, a guy called Toro. And, it, and he uses this belief in reincarnation as a single thread to hold the four novels together. But the period, as I said, runs literally from 1900 to about 1975. So it's a panorama of Japan through two world wars, through various different cultural changes. And it's also an essay in westernization versus nationalism, decadence versus idealism, love versus cynicism set against a panorama of, let's say, the vastness of the Buddhist universe. And I'm not doing it justice by just describing those. I just pulled at random several areas that the novel explores, you know. Sounds very epic. It's an epic work, actually, and deliberately epic in scope. Um, I, in my own personal opinion, um, the first two novels are flawless. They're superb. Third novel is excellent. I have issues with the fourth novel. I don't think it's of the same standard as the first three. I was going to ask you, do you did you notice a do you notice a change in them? Because obviously, mm -hmm. with the last one, yeah. he was going yeah. going through a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think the first two novels, as I said, are meticulously researched, beautifully written. I mean, there is a description of the Matsugi Kiyoki. Kiyoke, you know, the young uh, man who uh, in the first novel, the family estate, which is so beautifully written. Um, he's got a wonderful eye for detail. There's a lovely description of a cherry blossom festival celebration in the garden of the house. There's a lovely description of, um, you know, in Japan, there was a tradition in the, in the imperial palace in Tokyo of reading poetry at the start of the year. And again, all these are be beautifully described with an eye for historical detail. Um, That's a symbolism yeah. of, of blood, apparently. Yeah, indeed. And also, again, that whole idea of Huawei, you know, of the transience. The cherry blossom is just in blossom in there for a very, very, very short period of time. So it's the idea that we're going to lose something yeah, and it yeah. makes it more beautiful. Yeah. Um, so the novel, you know, or novels, are jam-packed with symbolism, you know. And... They are magnificent. I mean, the first one is my favorite of the four of them. I think it's such a beautiful, tragic love story. The second one is nicely written. It's paced almost like a thriller in the fact that you see this young man planning this coup and all these various figures trying to thwart him or aid him, you know. Um, beautifully done. Honda renouncing his judgeship to become a lawyer to defend him when he comes to trial. Beautifully done. Uh, nicely paced. The third novel is very ambitious on an intellectual level because midway through, 
there is a reflection on the whole idea of reincarnation, rebirth. And it's actually the trickiest novel, to, par, trick, trick, trickiest of the three to read because a very large chunk of it is taken up by Honda, who, with the outbreak of World War II, retreats to a study in Tokyo and reads everything he can lay his hand on, on reincarnation, on belief in rebirth within Eastern thinking, Buddhist, Hindu, but also indeed Western traditions of rebirth as well. It's exhaustive. In fact, if you ever want to get a crash course on reincarnation, read that chunk of that novel. Mishma did amazing research work on it. And he was asked at the time, um, you know, the novels were being serialized in a Japanese literary magazine in the late 60s, before they came out in book form. Did he believe? And he professed not to. Um, but a lot of leading Japanese scholars were very impressed at the time and since by his reading of it. It's very deeply informed, and he uses it so well in that particular part of the novel. But there's other elements of Buddhist belief that emerge throughout all four novels, and they're used very, very, very well as a novel, as a, as a plot structure, and, uh, and indeed also for their imagery as well. Hmm. I, um, I read that after he turned... 30, he wanted to write positive characters, mm-hmm. um, but he found that quite difficult in, in sort of contemporary writing to do that. Mm-hmm. He, he says um, the more he got back to Japanese tradition, the more he was able to achieve a positive character because he thinks that uh, the Japanese characters were sort of stunted by Westernism. Yeah. He says his shift to positive characters is j- Japanizing process, Japanesing process. Yeah. Um, um, he wants to also get back to the masculine or rough-celled rather than the fe- feminine, tender-celled. Yeah. Ah, yeah. This yeah. is it, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was something that was a team that recorded in a lot of his later essays and interviews, you know. As I said earlier on there, he figured that a lot of post-war intellectuals and writers in Japan overemphasized the intellectual, you know. You know, that Japan was, the, you know, about, the, about both the chrysanthemum and the sword, I think he wanted to emphasise the sword over the chrysanthemum eventually. Um, he, wa- he was very... Mm-hmm. Um, he, he got nominated for a few Nobel... You, uh, you, about three times. Yeah. About three times. And um, the last time was 68. And I figure this is a turning point in him psychologically from having read several biographies. He went to his old mentor and a man who actually helped him uh, in the late 40s to help launch his own literary career, a guy called Kawabata, who was a great, very great Japanese writer of the 20th century, who also, incidentally, went on to commit suicide, quite tragically. And, you know, Mishima at the time was very gracious, was the first person to go and greet him, congratulate him, and so on. But family and friends suggested he was deeply disappointed that he didn't get recognition. And certainly he should have done because he, because he was so heavily influenced by a lot of Western writers, he, in a sense, should have appealed to a much wider audience than, he, than, than maybe some of his other Japanese contemporaries might have done and should have been in contention for the award, yeah. So. He sort of had broken through to mm-hmm. the West. Yeah. So that's great. I think we have a lot of information on him there and um, a lot of reading um, mm-hmm. that you suggested. Would, would there be any other... Books of his that um, you would suggest people take a look at? Well, I think um, he wrote a wonderful novel called Forbidden Colours, which is about an elderly writer who 
it's quite, again, it's quite dark, who decides to revenge himself on women by taking on a young man who he then grooms to be the ideal man for women and lets him loose on people. Again, quite a dark work. Um, he wrote that in the 50s. Again, typical Mishima, he did all the field work by visiting gay bars in Tokyo, because uh, this is what he, he, he did. He went out and visited various places to get local color. Um, I would recommend that as a novel. Uh, it's darkly comical, but it is a dark tale. He wrote another novel in the early 60s called After the Banquet about a Japanese restaurant owner having an affair with a politician. He got sued for that because it was quite close to a, a Japanese politician who was running for office in Tokyo. He got sued. Um, he also wrote a number of short stories that will be available in, in various anthologies you'd spot. So, I mean, there is uh, quite a, lo a large number of his works around that has still yet to be translated, you know. Um, but certainly I'd recommend Forbidden Colours. I'd recommend After the Banquet. I would also recommend, as I said, the one the Sea of Fertility tetralogy. I think it's a superb series of novels, if, as I say, uneven. Confessions of a Mask, I think, is a tricky novel to read. I would also recommend The Temple of the Golden Pavilion, which is a wonderful book. Again, quite intellectual in some parts. Uh, again, it's basically a meditation on the dark side of the worship of beauty. Again, it's a typical story of, of his. And again, he uses reality. I mean, the Temple of Golden Pavilion was a very ancient little temple in Kyoto, which had survived World War II, survived various mishaps throughout the centuries only to be destroyed in 1950 by a schizophrenic Zen monk. It was, so Mishima takes a story, but he turns it into something a lot deeper and more profound than the actual incident itself. Again, as I said, it's exploration of the dark side of the contemplation of beauty, but is through the filter of Zen Buddhism, Zen philosophy. Not an easy read, but again, it's paced like a thriller, and I recommend that highly. Sounds like a very interesting, fascinating man in, in life and death. And I think you've, you've really illustrated it beautifully mm. and given us a lot of background on him. So thank you very much. Well, thank you.